welcome to a new episode of the Computomics podcast. My guest today has received multiple awards and recognition, including one as one of 25 Germans who will shape the next 25 years. He's the scientific coordinator of the Marie Curie Network and currently the deputy head of the Department of Biosystem Science and Engineering at ETH Zurich. Welcome to the Computomics podcast, Cast Bogwart. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Carsten, uh, we, we agreed we'll use first name uh, as, yes. as per usual. Carsten, um, what is your current focus area at ETH Zurich? Um, what's your research focus? So I'm the professor of machine learning in the department of, of uh, biosystem science and engineering, as you said. So it's a mixture of uh, machine learning and the life sciences. That's actually my, my, my focus, developing Uh, machine learning data science techniques for solving problems in the life science uh, domain. Um, so reaching from plant biology to, to medicine, uh, we are developing algorithms for uh, answering questions in these uh, biomedical research areas. And knowing not too much detail about your work, could you give an example of such a problem that you tackle? The one very important problem for us at the moment is, for example, in the, in the medical domain, where we are trying to use all the data that has been collected about a patient in the intensive care unit to predict whether complications will arise during the further stay in the intensive care unit. Uh, for instance, whether this patient will develop sepsis. So that's extremely hard uh, to predict. So sepsis is also more informally known as blood poisoning. It's extremely hard to predict uh, whether someone will develop sepsis during an ICU stay. And uh, we want to support uh, this uh, recognition problem by using machine learning. So we want to build algorithms that can, from all the data that's being recorded, from all the physiological data that's being recorded about the patient, from all the lab measurements, lab tests that are being performed uh, on samples from the, from the patient, um, we all, using all of this data, we want to make an accurate prediction whether this person might develop sepsis in the next few hours. Mm -hmm. This is like one typical example of uh, where we use um, machine learning And in another uh, recent study, we used uh, machine learning to rapidly predict whether um, there's antibiotic resistance in a, in a given patient. So given that a, a patient has been infected by a bacterium, for example, we predict whether there are antimicrobial resistances uh, that should be respected when choosing a treatment for this patient. So these are two examples from the, from the medical domain. In the biological domain, we also look into more basic research questions like um, which genes uh, or which variation in which genes in an organism um, are associated with phenotypic changes. So like a classic uh, question from genetics, which sequence, genome sequence uh, variants are associated with a, an observable change in the, in the phenotype. So in, in characteristics of an, of an individual. And there we are developing Uh, novel algorithms for this for this task, for instance, algorithms that take not one gene or one sequence position into account, but multiple or even interactions between multiple genes or or multiple genome positions. Th those are quite a few examples and also yeah. quite a broad spectrum that you're dealing with. Um, if I were to pick just your second example of antibacterial resistance, uh, rapid recognition of that, how can I envision you using machine learning for that purpose? How would that work? So how we did it in this uh, recent study, this is a work that appeared in, in, in Nature Medicine in, in 
two weeks ago in January uh, 2022. Um, so in this work, we used hundreds of thousands of so-called mass spectra measurements, Malditov mass spectra measurements that had been collected in laboratories all over Northwestern Switzerland. Um, and you can think of these as, as fingerprints of proteins in a, in a sample from, from a patient. And um, we use these profiles to uh, train a machine learning algorithm to distinguish between such profiles that had been collected from a resistant sample uh, from those that had been collected from a sensitive sample. So we, we gave a lot of examples to, to the machine of these uh, protein fingerprints, you could, you could say, such that the machine learns to distinguish between those that represent a resistant example from those that represent a sensitive example. And uh, the key to making this work was the access to a very big collection of data. So we combined data from the University Hospital Basel with uh, data from various other laboratories, as I said, from Northwestern Switzerland, from other um, hospitals in this, mm -hmm. in this area. And this, this allowed us to have a co collection of, um, of hundreds of thousands of these protein fingerprints of multi-tough mass spectra, so more, more than 300,000. And we had more than 700,000 associated resistance phenotypes. So, so where, someone, wow. where, where someone had experimentally examined whether this sample, this pathogen is resistant to a particular antibiotic or antimicrobial uh, or not. So this, this huge collection of um, mass spectra plus associated resistance phenotype allowed us to then use algorithms that can, from such massive collections of data, uh, learn the connection, the, the, the correlation in most cases between um, mass spectra properties and the resistance phenotype of interest. And then when presented with a new a mass spectrum from a new uh, pathogen um, or from a new infection, a new patient in the hospital, then we can make a prediction how likely it is that there is a certain exist, uh, resistance uh, existent in this particular case. And then accordingly change treatment if necessary, if, exactly. if the resistance this, is likely. Exactly, exactly. So, and this we explored together with our clinical uh, colleagues. So one specialist for infectious diseases did a retrospective analysis uh, using this, this our tool. So uh, this specialist looked at 63 uh, cases retrospectively that had been treated in the hospital with, with antibiotics. And uh, he simulated the scenario that what would he have done or would, would he have changed the, the, the treatment if our prediction had been available to him at the time he initially chose the treatment. And he looked at 63 patients, whether our prediction would have made a difference in the treatment. Because would it? Uh, so it turned out in nine cases, yes, nine out of 63, yes. And in eight cases, this would have been beneficial. So we would have de-escalated the antibiotic treatment, used a uh, more specific antibiotic in eight cases. And in the ninth one, we would have recommended an un unnecessary escalation of the antibiotic treatment. So in, in close to 90% of the cases where the algorithm triggered a change in the treatment, it was beneficial for the, for the treatment. That's the first hint that this, will, that this could actually really have a, a clinical impact, our predict predictions, and that it's not just a, like a, a theoretical exercise to, to develop such an algorithm.
not that we want to judge theoretical exercises, but no, especially I'm, I'm with a theoretician myself, so I have no no reservations here. Yeah. Of course, but again, with being able to apply it, obviously that's that's another step uh, and a very valuable step. Yeah, you also very, referenced very... Uh, the sepsis as an example, and I know that um, you actually lead the um, what's called the personalized Swiss sepsis study. Could you go into a little more detail? And I'm especially interested in the personalized part um, of that name of the equation. Yeah, so let's let's uh, go into to the like the details of this uh, personalized Swiss sepsis study. So it's called personalized because we try to make predictions for an individual patient based on the properties of that patient. And so far, in phase one of this uh, personalized Swiss sepsis study, this is the electronic health record of that person. So all physiological measurements of that person in the intensive care unit go into our data sets. So, so for example, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate would be typical examples here, like lab tests, for example, on, on blood samples from, from that patient or other information about the health history of that person, like are there any comorbidities, for example. So that, that's the type of information that we are currently collecting for the study on each individual patient. And this data is then being used to, tra again, train a machine learning model to then be able to make for a specific individual patient a personalized prediction. That's why we speak of personalized medicine here. And it's called Swiss uh, sepsis study because we are harmonizing the data from all Swiss uh, university hospitals from their intensive care units for this purpose. So, so this is... From uh, all of them? From all five, yeah. So Lausanne, Geneva, Bern, Zurich, and Basel. Um, they all come together and we, we harmonize their, their data into one joint uh, data set into the same format such that we can learn a model across these different uh, sites and also evaluate our model on these different sites and then make, make predictions of whether sepsis might happen um, or not. So these are the two aspects, so like really a nationwide effort to collect data for this task and together build a machine learning model for accurately detecting and predicting sepsis. Very interesting. And how, how long is the study? Because it's still running at the moment, right? How long running. will the study go? So we started in, in um, 2018. And uh, it's, it's a long-term effort. So uh, you, you can probably imagine that uh, even getting five hospitals or nationwide uh, to agree legally or and to, to exchange the data and to harmonize it in one in one way or in one central location is a, was a big legal effort, in fact, to organize this, this properly. And now there's a, uh, afterwards, there was a huge data engineering and data curation effort to harmonize uh, these different data. So Switzerland has four national languages. I mean, this alone causes some um, challenges here, but beyond that, so really ensuring that variables that we get from different hospitals have the same meaning, that the measurements are comparable. That's a, a huge effort of, of data curation. And we are now um, completing this effort. And we are now in these months, in these weeks, reaching the point where we can really then do machine learning on this data and, and uh, do predictions. So now we have in the order of 17,000 uh, patients in this harmonized data set, and it's constantly growing. It's roughly growing by 800 patients a month. So uh, for more than two years now, we have been including, um, or roughly two years, we have been including patients into, into this joint data set. And it's, it's constantly growing. 
And this is this is what I now describe as phase one of the project. We also um, are very eager to start phase two. There mm -hmm. we will also collect molecular data about these patients, like or different omics uh, levels that describe the patients that that um, develop sepsis during their stay in the in the ICU. And so we're now kind of kind of heading towards the end of phase one, I take it, and we're about exactly. to enter phase two where you where you exactly. take molecular data. And how long is that set to go? Or when do you expect to to also to have that first machine learning phase uh, completed and maybe even have the first results, kind of inter intermediate results to go off of? So for the phase one, I think we'll have the, the results in this in the next uh, six months. So in, maybe in the first half of 2022. Mm -hmm. And for the for the the, um, the molecular one, of course, depends also a bit on how much COVID is uh, keeping the ICUs uh, busy and whether there's enough time to, to pursue this project. I believe this, if let's let's say the pandemic or let's assume the pandemic now end now ends, let's be optimistic. Then fingers then crossed. Would, <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, then maybe two years down, uh, we'll we'll need to collect as a, a data set of sufficient size and then we can do the machine learning analysis. So I expect that this will be something for. Uh, first half of 2024, two years from now. Yeah, those are those are quite long uh, time frames. And also, I thought it was really interesting that aspect of really to have that to train that machine learning algorithm. You really need good data. You need enough data, and you need good data. And the challenge that poses, I, what do you think will be the role of these of of national or even you know European or international projects uh, for these types of machine learning projects that you are doing? Yeah, so we are very quickly in machine learning reaching the point where in many um, research questions, a single hospital is not collecting enough examples to really do a form of big data analysis. So uh, maybe even the, the antimicrobial resistance prediction project I mentioned before is the counter example. So there, the University Hospital Basel uh, alone collects like tens of thousands of these uh, measure measurements, these multi of measurements um, in clinical routine. So that's maybe the counter example. There, there are such applications. But, but then sepsis, if you want to study sepsis at the molecular level, then it's known that, the, that sepsis is very heterogeneous as a, as a syndrome. So it may be caused by different pathogens. So if you want to stratify for a particular pathogen, for example, that, that causes sepsis, then your case numbers drop so much, then not only is then like one hospital too little to study this, maybe even one country, even a medium-sized country is then then, then uh, too small to study uh, an important uh, syndrome like like uh, or condition like like sepsis. Um, so we really depend on on large data sets, and that means we have to work at an international level. We have to bring to together data from different sites here to really reach the. The, the orders of magnitude in our data sets that allow us to do what, what one could, could call like big data analysis. And uh, so that, that's one big point. So we need this collaboration to, to have sufficiently large data sets. The other point is, of course, and that's also fundamental in medicine, but in all areas of machine learning in the life sciences, we have to validate the, uh, the predictions that we make externally. So if sepsis prediction works in Basel, this is no guarantee that it will work in Zurich. So maybe there is an aspect of the Basel data that gives away that someone will uh, develop sepsis. So, so there may be a form of con confounder that the machine learning will pick up and this confounder may not be present in Zurich. So 
you, then you shouldn't like celebrate if the algorithm works in, in Basel, you should then take it to other locations, slightly different data, see whether it generalizes to, to this other setting, see whether it is robust in this, this other setting and can still make uh, good predictions. And this, this we did, for example, in the antimicrobial resistance prediction. So we, um, we had their data from these different hospitals and, and laboratories in Northwestern Switzerland. And we tested whether when training on one side, on data from one side, we could then uh, generalize the predictions to other sites. And what we saw is that we could largely do is there was some um, like drop in performance, but not a drastic one, not in the sense that it got random on the, on the other side. So there's some effect of location, but it's still working in most cases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that would always have to be, uh, that's how I take you now, the, the last step would have to be this kind of checks and balances of, okay, now we need to validate. Now we need to go somewhere else, have a diverse data set uh, exactly. and test if, if it works the same way, if it spits out, exactly. if, if, if that, you pardon the, the general that, term, spits out. That's right extremely data. important in, in uh, machine learning and medicine, this, this mm -hmm. point. Um, it's maybe less dramatic when you do machine learning for uh, Bio, for basic research in, in biology, when you grow plants in a, in a greenhouse under controlled conditions like Arabidopsis. So in earlier phases of my career, I also worked on Arabidopsis. So there, this is when you, when you uh, look at uh, like laboratory strains of Arabidopsis, the environment is more controlled. Of course, like a, a human patient is completely um, different. It's a completely different scenario. So in, these, in, in model organisms, you can control the, the environment in the lab much more. So there you can generalize more, but in a, in a setting where the environment is so variable as in a hospital or, or like or the, the, the living circumstances of a living environment of a, of a patient, there you really have to take this to a different, um, to a different location and see whether the predictions that you made, made in the first location also generalize to the second location. Mm -hmm. Because you, you, didn't, you didn't have the chance to control the, the environment in the same way as you could do with model organisms in the lab. How do you see the outlook uh, for, for machine learning, given that it is, you mentioned it a, a bit earlier, uh, quite the challenge to bring together so many different players from either different regions, different nations, you know, there, there might be quite a lot of red tape to deal with. Uh, how do you see this, this working in the, in the years to come? I think it's um, a huge um, enterprise, a huge undertaking to make uh, machine learning and medicine work it's it's not a like a a small research project that maybe one professorship can do on, on its own with, with with the team uh, with, with a small team it's really like bringing together different hospitals the levels of of expertise or so or different points of view like the clinical one the machine learning one the legal one the ethical one the, the views or the perspective of the patients so there are many parts of this system that you have to get to work so that you act legally and ethically in your, in your research, that you do machine learning research that has a clinical impact. So why would we do all this effort if then we just have some like models that would never really help the treatment in, in the clinic? So you, you have to be in a steady exchange with the clinicians and also learn about their perspective on what is useful and what is not useful. And maybe they learn about our perspective, what is doable and what is not doable with, with algorithms. So a, a very good collaboration with um, clinical researchers is, is key here. 
and managing these various different and, and uh, challenging aspects from legal clarifications, ethical approval, IT requirements, data harmonization. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole workflow of um, things that have to be taken care of. So it's, it's a massive enterprise, as I, as I said, and you have to have experts for all of these various uh, domains. So maybe we have to, maybe we even have to do more division of labor than we, we do so far. So we need like bigger teams where we, where there are legal experts, where there are experts for the ethics approval, experts for the for IT uh, issues and, and data harmonization and so on. And I think also we are going in this way and, and um, Switzerland is, is uh, doing very well, is, is, is pushing in exactly this direction that we have a national infrastructure for doing such projects. I think that's, and that's a very good direction, I believe. Yeah, for sure. That was while you were saying we need bigger teams, maybe more specialization. I was also thinking also templates. <laughs> Ideally, you know, you learn just like the machine learning algorithm learns with the data input, the team or, or any such structure combination of, of people working together would hopefully learn from from previous projects and maybe even share. I think that would be a very interesting aspect to have this open science aspect to the process of how did we make this work? What were the challenges? How did we tackle them? And also what did didn't work and what what do we what yeah. have we learned how we can do it better is there any such effort as well so in fact the sepsis study is supposed to play this role and i think and, and from my perspective of course i'm biased but uh, <laughs> it, it is playing this role very well so it's a so-called driver project for personalized health in switzerland so one of three driver projects where all of these challenges shall be exposed and shall be first encountered in a project of this scale and i think I can speak for myself, I can speak for my co-coordinator Adrian Ekli from the University Hospital Basel, so we together lead this effort. We, we and the team of more than 20 PIs, we have, we have encountered all of the, these challenges that I previously uh, described at these various levels now since 20, 2018. Um, so we can give, a, I think, a very complete and very long account of what the challenges are when you try to make such big machine learning medicine projects um, happen. And I think this is, has a model and a template character for future studies in, in the field. And uh, yeah, so we will share, we will share this. Um, mm -hmm. um, so there will, it's basically two studies yeah. going on at the same time, you could say there's the, the actual, your actual research subject, and then also the, there will be some kind of pulling together the, the learnings uh, to create a template uh, within yeah. this driver project. And this, this made this project rather unique in my career in the sense that this was a project where I didn't only have to solve like an intellectual challenge in that sense, but I, I and the, of course the whole team, the whole consortium, we had to build a, an infrastructure to solve the problem. So that made this particular project uh, different from many other smaller scale projects I've done in, in, the, in the past, where mm -hmm. I had to solve like a an algorithmic challenge or support a biological finding with my algorithms. Here it was like building a national infrastructure and then tackling the, the research question. The listeners can't see you, unlike me, and your eyes like literally lit up as you said that. Uh, the, the kind of the, I can see that you enjoy that challenge of, of doing both, even though I'm sure it was yeah, hard. It's, it's, it's good when you look back at it and uh, know that you managed to overcome the challenges. But I can tell you where the challenges are in the future. It's some, sometimes maybe my eyes are not shining in that, that, that moment. So it's good, it's good to talk about challenges that were overcome or that, that were solved um, in, in the past. Yes, so then 
um, yeah. For sure. You have, uh, I think you're, you've just started a sabbatical too, right? Yeah, so my first sabbatical at ETH, um, since I joined ETH in 2014. Yeah, so my research will continue as usual, but for one semester, I will not be teaching. So I usually teach a, a data mining uh, course at, at ETH every semester, data mining one and two. And now in this uh, spring, I won't be teaching uh, data mining two for, for one semester. So you will focus mainly on that sepsis study and the other research uh, you're, you're... Yeah, so this research part uh, will, will continue. Uh, just my, I don't have teaching duties for one semester. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the change, yeah. Sounds very exciting. I have just uh, just one more topic I'd like to broach. Namely, you are uh, also a member of the scientific advisory board at Computomics. Uh, so you know, if we can't not talk about it in the Computomics podcast, um, what what does that role entail of scientific advisor on that board? So it's a, it's a very exciting role. So I'm also a co-founder of, of Computomics. So in 2012, together with um, with colleagues from, from uh, Tübingen and, and with, with the, the current CEO. And uh, we, we founded uh, Computomics and um, I've accompanied the development of the, the company over the years. So um, these days I work in a, like a branch of machine learning in the life sciences that is a bit further from, from Computomics. But back in the days in Tübingen, I did a lot of work in, uh, in plant genetics, which is very close to, to what Computomics is working on. Um, I think both my current research and the fields that the computomics are active in are examples for how exciting this field of machine learning in the life sciences is. Also, now that computomics is turning 10 years this, this year, I think we have witnessed in an enormous growth in topics and possibilities in this, in this field. So the field has really very much grown in importance over the last 10 years. And uh, I, I can see this from the things that, that Computomics is doing, the projects that Computomics is doing. I can see it in my own research, like how the possibilities and how the, the prospects and so on of, of uh, machine learning in the life sciences has grown. Yeah. And uh, now that your role is, you know, from originally being a co-founder to now being uh, in the advisory board, what do you get to do still like with that? One of your babies, you could say, right? <laughs> Yeah, so for me, it's very interesting to follow like uh, what Computomics is doing, um, like uh, yield prediction, for example, for, for plants. Of course, there are, from a mathematical point of view, um, similarities to predicting um, a clinical complication, for example. You may be using the same algorithms for that, and uh, maybe treatments by uh, the doctor are modeled in the same way as treatments by the farmer, like how the, how the farmer changed the conditions under which the crops are being grown. So, so there are mathematically, and that's actually also my own background, or computation is my own background. So computationally, there are uh, common topics at an algorithmic level between these different branches of uh, machine learning life sciences, and therefore also like between what computomics is doing um, and between what I'm doing in, in my current research. That's also actually an answer to a previous question that you asked like the, <laughs> uh, about like the diversity of topics in my lab. Mm -hmm. This diversity stems from the fact that, that in these various branches of machine learning in the life sciences, there are fundamental algorithmic problems that tend to reoccur all over the time. Like how to best model the environment, how to 
detect complicated, not, not, not simple, not linear interactions between genes or, or uh, components of a system, if I, if I phrase it even more abstract. So, um, so these are uh, reoccurring algorithmic questions in different branches of, of the life sciences. And the diversity of my own lab stems from the fact that we are interested in solving these fundamental questions. And then sometimes when we have solved it for one application, we can also then take this knowledge and solve a different application in the life sciences. So this is also the reason why I, in my lab, like work on questions in synthetic biology and on in, in personalized medicine, for example. So sometimes there are questions that reoccur. Right. That makes perfect sense. And it's also a really nice way to kind of close the circle because once again, we're at the point where we say we need more data <laughs> to be able to produce a better model, right? Which is, you know, I guess exactly. in a meta way also what you're doing, right? You, and, you... Yeah, and that's a key thing, I believe, in in this 10-year progress that I, that I just referred to. So over the last decade, uh, the number of domains in which big data is available has just exploded. So these were very limited domains in 2005, when I started my PhD, for example, and still in 2010, so it was like maybe collections of chemical compounds. It was uh, DNA sequence databases, um, to some degree gene expression uh, profiles. But so these these are the classic types of big data in computational biology. But over the last um, 10 years, or over in the in the 2010s, this so the, the number of application domains where big data is available has just tre tremendously grown. So it's very uh, impressive how much data is available. In so in the medical domain, we have one, one prime example, like how much medical data is now available in, in digital form, and it's constantly growing. It needs, it needs some effort. I think I've described this for sepsis mm -hmm. to bring this into a form that researchers can really use it. But there is an enormous treasure there uh, that can be lifted in the Mine. medical domain yeah exactly and in the biological uh, research um, so there's uh, ba basic research they are also like the high throughput technologies have further developed and, and they can measure various aspects of a at the molecular level so there's an enormous uh, wealth there of data also and as alpha fold has shown maybe this is, i should also highlight recently this big data can then help to to solve unsolved uh, fundamental questions in, in biology, like the, the successful protein structure prediction by AlphaFold2 uh, demonstrated this very recently. This may be like the, another type of, of data I should have mentioned before, so like protein structure data was also available mm -hmm. um, in 2005 already. And 15 years later, this led to this big breakthrough that we have seen now with AlphaFold2 and its accurate protein structure predictions. So would you, would you say it's it's accurate or it's safe to say uh, the the future for machine learning is bright, given that there is so much more data, that there are more and more model projects or, or uh, like you were saying, driver projects that aim to establish templates for, for working with these projects? The future is bright. Yes. It, is, it is certainly bright. Uh, in particular, machine learning in the life sciences, I think it has a very bright future, it was always lacking, a bit lacking behind uh, machine learning for like more internet tasks, I call them <laughs> informally, like, like speech recognition, text recognition, image annotation, and so on. Um, because in, in the life sciences, it used to be much harder to get large sample sizes. It used to be much, and often still is, uh, much harder uh, to 
get a reliable phenotype. So in these early successful examples of, of, of machine learning, for example, um, like playing Go, the phenotype, the outcome is very easy to define. Like you win or you lose. Like mm -hmm. phenotyping someone by telling whether that person has a disease is a much harder task. So in particular, if we start talking about psychiatric diseases, neurological diseases, and so on. So, so on this level, you can already tell that phenotyping, determining the outcome or the output variable that you are interested in is much harder in the biomedical domain. So we have this difficulty, we have the smaller sample size. That's why, why it was always a question whether um, machine learning in the life sciences could also replicate the big success that we have seen in machine learning for these internet tasks. Mm -hmm. And now with AlphaFold 2 and many other examples that we have seen over the last few years, I think the answer to this is yes. And I also believe there's much more yet to come. So this, I think in the 2020s, we'll see like uh, the, the further rise of machine learning in the, in the life sciences. And for, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we'll see further breakthroughs in this field. I am not an expert, but I, I would agree <laughs> from a lay laywoman's perspective. Um, and I definitely hope you'll be back uh, to talk about these these breakthroughs when they happen. Uh, um, be back here in the in the podcast to talk about them as well. Thank you so much for your time, Carsten. You're welcome. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. As did I, and I hope our listeners did too. We certainly learned a lot about the personalized Swissepsis study, uh, the importance of data sets, the importance of validation, and so much more. It was really a joy uh, to talk with you about this. And to our listeners, obviously, you know, you can listen to the episode as often as you want to really catch all the details. It was certainly full of them. Um, meanwhile, uh, until the next episode, feel free to check out our website at computomics.com. And I look forward to having you with us again. Bye.